on the throne of heaven. Know that God hears our prayers. And I'm simply going to repeat what we just sang. You find your own words. And I want each of us to pray. God, would you speak to us? And Lord, praying for me, just Dave. I say, Lord, whatever you speak to me, and I do believe that you speak to me even though you're using me to speak to others. Whatever you speak to me, Lord, I commit to obeying it. You're the Lord of my life. You're the Lord, you're the pastor, you're the elder in this church. Speak to me. Speak to all of us. And whatever you say, God, may it be done. For you are Lord. We are your delighted servants that you would call us to be a part of what you're doing in the world. God, speak to us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Seated. We begin in 2 Timothy this morning. We're going to wind up in 1 Timothy. But I want to set a contrast for you and to help you see that contrast. We start in 2 Timothy chapter 3, these first nine verses. Understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty, this translation says. People will be lovers of self. Here's what he means by difficulty. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, can never make them happy, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. How about this one? Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Verse 5 in this section might be the key that I want you to see in establishing this contrast. Having the appearance of godliness. So verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 are all the problems of attitude and, and existence. At our very core, we're guilty of those first five verses. And yet, verse 5, we want to appear to be godly. Catch contradiction here. Catch the dilemma. All of the problems, one through four, and yet, I would not miss church. I, what do you do? I read my Bible every day. I read my devotions. I, what, 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 what is it that we, look, look, we, we hold something up. I'm godly. I go to church. But as much as we have the appearance of godliness, as much as there is this, this self-deception, we deny its power. Well, yeah, I, I go to church. I'm not sure it's going to change me that much. I feel better. It makes me more courteous. I, am, I find myself being more polite now. But there's no real drastic transformational power If that's the case, avoid those people, and people will be avoiding you, us. If we just have a form, the appearance, 
the structures, attendance of godliness, but with no confidence in its power. Avoid those people. Among those, among them, people like that are those that creep into households and capture weak. He's going to two illustrations. He's not just picking on women. He'll get to the men who, who go into households and capture not convinced, not convicted women. They're, I don't know, I'll try this. I don't know, I'll try this. Maybe this, maybe this. The bigger problem is not a lack of spiritual focus, weak. But this burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning. I know, I know, I'm going to my Bible studies and I do this in my small group and I read. Oh, yes, 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 always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Like, and then he moves to these two guys in Moses' day, Janus and Jambres. They opposed Moses. Just like people in our world today opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind. Here's the phrase. Disqualified for lack of faith. In the area of faith. Disqualified. But don't worry about these weak women and rebellious men. They will not get very far. Now it looks like they're winning. The Bible says they will not get very far. They will never deceive those that truly know God. They will never lure away those who hear the truth and know the truth and have embraced the truth. They will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all. And right now you may be thinking, careful about your attitude, but you may be thinking of some person that fits this criteria, women or men. That yeah, they talk a good game, but there's no substance. All my life I've loved that sarcastic phrase, he's an empty suit. They will not get far. Their folly will be plain to all, as it was to Jonas and Jambres. Here's the problem that Timothy is, uh, Paul is telling Timothy about in Timothy's day, first century. First century, form of godliness denying its power. Now, let's go to the text. First Timothy, chapter 3. And we begin in verse 1. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go quickly to work. Here we go. Saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, the word overseer is poimen, P-O-I-M-E-N, and it's such a broad word. It shows up as overseer, pastor, elder, uh, bishop. Uh, I'm sure there's others I can't remember now. I should have written them down. If anyone aspires to this calling, if anyone feels God is just, just calling me, I'm, I'm not trying to be inappropriate. But Marquise is saying to us as a congregation, I, I, I feel God is, is calling me to this this. Way to spend my life of shepherding. There's another word. Shepherding, poimen. Shepherding the people of God. Jose and I are saying to you, we're certain that God has called us. Marquis is saying, I really believe God is now calling me. If anyone aspires to this, 
it's a noble work. This is good work. This is, this is not, yeah, it's just lazy because they don't want to get a real job once a week. Oh, I wish that were true. This is a noble task, this calling, this decision. And it is a decision as a response to the calling. It is a noble, it's good, it's, it has some credibility to it. Now, the rest of, all the way down, verse 2. So, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Here's the distinction to this, apart from deacons, we'll get to deacons in just a second, apt or able to teach. So, if you think this is, that's, that's uh, easy money. Well, think again. Above reproach, one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, apt, able, equipped to teach. Verse 3. I'm going to fly through these. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Not a lover. And I'm not doing this for the money. Verse three, uh, 4. He must manage his own household well. If your home falls apart, your boss is probably not going to fire you. He may help you with a lawyer and set you up an apartment so you can just keep working. But he's not going to fire you. In the kingdom of God, you can't manage your house, you lose your job. How about that? Let's manage his own household well, with dignity, keeping his children submissive. Here's why. Because, for, 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 why? Because someone doesn't know how to manage his house, how's he going to care of the church of God? That's pretty good logic. It's shepherding. It's shepherding. You can't shepherd two or three. <laughs> you can only shepherd 20 or 30. Wow. It's shepherding. Verse 6. You must not be a recent convert because he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Oh, this is pretty easy. And people are listening to me and people are saying really nice things about me. And, and wow. And all of a sudden you think, I, I can do this. This is pretty easy. I don't know what the, all, the, all the angst and the, I got this. Well, you ain't done it long enough. You got kicked in the teeth a few times. Must not be a recent convert. Here's why. Because you're not getting a full picture yet. Verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Not just the people you shepherd, the congregation. Not just your church family. But there ought to be some, some even from unbelievers, recognition. No, this guy, there's something about this guy. He's got the character of Christ. He's other-centered. He doesn't blow off and get angry just that quick. And even when he does get angry, it's not sinful and, and, and harmful. Must be well thought of by unbelievers, outsiders. So they may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. That's elders. That's pastors, shepherds, overseers, bishops. It's all those words. Is the same word, P-O-I-M-E-N, in the Greek, poimen. And that's the criteria. 
A quick look at deacons, and then I'll slow down just a bit, not much, but I'll slow down a bit, and, and then we'll make some application at the very end. Starting at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. So he's clearly making, Paul is writing to Timothy, clearly making this point that, yeah, so deacons may not be spiritual elders, but they're spiritual men who need to meet the same criteria of dignity. All the things that we flew through in those first seven verses, likewise, deacons. That our dignity is not, I know how to control my tongue and I speak eloquently or at least distinctly. And I have some respectability about me because the way I carry myself, I know what to wear and what situation, what occasion. My language is not offensive, and, and that's what's make me dig, dignified. No, 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 no. The scriptures are looking for a deeper kind of dignity. Not that I have a good house, and my kids don't sass me in public. We never really goes on at people's homes. No, no, there's a, there's, a, there's a depth to this dignity. That they say the same thing in public as they say at home, and at home as they say in public. They're consistent. Not addicted to much wine. To much wine. They have a glass of wine. They're not addicted. It doesn't get out of control. They're not drunkards. They're not party animals. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 9. They must hold the mystery of faith. Now verse 9 is the key to where we're going today. This word mystery. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let me tell you, there are a number of mysteries, not just things. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? The greater mystery is, how does this coexist with this? How does this coexist? How, how can we be wise as serpents and gentle as doves? And yet that's what we're called to. How, how do we do that? How, how do we do that? How do we believe that our decisions matter? That I'm accountable for all of my decisions. Every idle word. And yet, at the same time, that we're very much mindful that God is in control of all things. God is in control of all things, and yet my words matter? I could go for a long time, I mean hours, plural, just giving you illustrations of the mysteries of God turning sinners into saints. Just these mysteries of, how, how does that coexist with this? How does this blend into this? How, how does that happen? How does God do that? We hold that mystery with a clear conscience. I'm, I'm at peace with this. We'll get to that. Verse 10. Let them be tested first, just like pastors, elders. It's not for, not right away. I, let's, let's walk a mile in these shoes. Maybe a two, three, a bit. Same with deacons now. Let them also be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves. It's got to be, you're looking for some qualities here. You're looking for some, some character traits. We're not looking for people who are 
rough and abusive and abrasive, but they get the job done. Well, there's a trail of crying people behind them, but they get the job done. I'm just trying to get a job done. Looking for the character of Christ. That's the dignity back in verse 8. That's the dignity that's in view. Verse 11. And again, the family becomes the, the, the workable illustration that, no, he knows how to manage without making people rebellious. He, he knows how to get teamwork. Come on, let's get on the same page. Let's, come on, we can, we, to that, together we can do more. He, he can do that. You see it in his family. If he can do it in his family, he can do it in a church family too. This word dignity, not slanderers, not sober, but rather they are sober-minded, faithful in all things. Husband of one wife again, managing their children, own households as well. This is the illustration of, of, no, they know how to deal with people. They've figured it out. They've found some biblical standards to follow, some examples to, to, to emulate. And they're, they're applying these principles and their kids ain't perfect but they're under management and we're all a work in progress. Finally, verse 13, I say finally, we're getting to the end here, the end of where I'm going to slow down. We're not about to go home yet. <laughs> Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Now, careful how you, you interpret this. Remember how it's said about elders they're pursuing a noble thing. That's a good thing. It's a high calling. If, if that's your work, go for it if you're called to it. He's saying a similar thing now about deacons. That those who serve well as deacons, uh, because those who do serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves. Oh, you're a deacon in your church? Now that has become, in many 21st century American culture situations, well, they give a lot of money, so let's give them a title. No, by biblical criteria, doing it God's way, the person who's serving and coordinating, come on, fellas, let's work together. We can get this done. Let's, let's put the team together. We can do this and, and, and alleviate the elders. Let them do what they do, and we'll do what we do. And You achieve that. Oh, those people brought a good standing to themselves and great confidence in the faith. I am a Christian. I, I am a Christian. Not because oh, I'm, I'm a deacon now. <laughs> no, because I'm serving people. And I'm working with others and we're collaborating. And Where am I weak and where are you strong? And how can we help one another? And how can we build up the church? It becomes an evidence, a manifestation of faith. There's great confidence, and I see the character of Christ in me. I'm not bragging about it, but it's refreshing. Wow, because I've had my doubts. Wow, God is at work in me. He is changing me. He's actually using me. I want to be careful that I don't boast about that, but what an honor. I think I am a Christian. In verse 14, there's a shift. And some would say it's so radical 
that it's a whole new concept. I disagree. There is a shift, and it is significant. I'm not sure I call it radical, but it is significant. But not so significant that we're done talking about elders and deacons. There's no paragraph break. There's no clear designation of a new theme being introduced. He goes right from talking about elders and deacons and saying this. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things. These things. Now here's the minor problem, but it's not that big of a deal. I'll point it out to you just so in case you, you come across it. Some say these things starts now in verse 15. There's no reason for you to assume that. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing to you these things. The things I've already said from verses 1 down to verse 13 to the things I'm about to say now, beginning in verse 15. I'm planning on coming to see you in person. But I'm writing you these things before I get there, before I get there, that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. I'm writing to you about elders and deacons. And I'm about to write to you to the mystery of godness in verse 16, but we'll get there in just a second. Verse 14 and 15, this transition from, from what I've written to you and what I'm about to write to you now at the end of this large section. Well, not that large, but this section down to verse 16. I'm writing to you this, I'm writing this to you, elders and deacons, and the mystery of godliness, because I want you to know how to behave. Now, the word behave is not necessarily... When you were a little kid, your mom took you to church, your dad took you to church, and you had to sit by your mom. And Well, I'm speaking about my own childhood now. My, my mom was the first uh, person in her family to get a college degree. And she was not boastful about that, but it was an achievement. It was an achievement. And she had a class ring. And, and uh, she had a wedding band on her left hand and a class ring on her right hand with a tiny little stone. It was a small little ring. In fact, it's probably, I don't know, my brother has it, I have it, someone's got it. And, and, and it had a small little stone, and it's on her right hand. Now, my older brother was already allowed to sit apart from the family until he got in trouble. My dad would call him out from the pulpit saying, go sit with your mother. And, and uh, that was the beginning of a long afternoon's conversation with me too, much later. But I'm sitting by my mom, and I'm fidgety, and my foot's tapping, and, I, and I'm playing with stuff, and I'm flipping through the hymnal, and, and, and I'm all over the place. And I'm not that much better now. And my mom would say, David, David, David. And finally she would turn the ring around to the stones on the palm side, and she'd just nonchalantly put her arm on the back of the pew, and then go, not against the back of my head with that stone, that pow. And I knew, okay, you better stop now, and there will be a conversation at home. And it's a good day if it's just a conversation. I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God. But the word household isn't what I just illustrated 
public church service. Household is not a building. It's a word that speaks about relationship. Brother, sister, elder, deacon, part of a church family. And we don't just behave in church building with courtesy and politeness. We behave in relationship with love and sacrifice and encouragement and gentle but appropriate rebuke even and challenge. Come on, come on. You're getting lazy in your commitment to Christ. Let's go. Let's get serious in our small group. Let's start to having a loving, loving accountability. Let's encourage one another. What are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? Let me confess you my, my sins. Please pray for me. How we ought to behave in the relationship of brothers and sisters in Christ. Household is not talking about a building. That's why I'm writing to you about elders and deacons. And that's why I'm now transitioning into this other thing I'm to you about called the mystery of godliness. But it's not detached from elders and deacons. So cut this off. That's a separate issue. They're all connected. I'm writing to you these things so that you might know how to behave in the relationship with one another in the church, which is, watch this, the pillar and buttress of truth. Pillar and buttress is just two words to speak about what holds the weight. It holds the weight of the building. What holds the weight of the seriousness of what we do? Now there's studs on these walls, if you know that word studs. And there's trusses in the roof that hold the weight of this building to keep it from collapsing. And in our relationships, there's pillars and buttresses there's studs and, 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 and there's stuff that keeps the weight of being Christian from, from just wearing you down. It's loving one another. It's praying for one another. It's encouraging. It's all the one another's. And it's the doctrinal stuff. We don't believe this. We believe this. And perhaps the cornerstone, perhaps the foundation of, of, of all of the pillars and buttresses, all of the things that work, the holding the weight, the tension of living the Christian life with one another in the midst of a wicked and pagan world that's mocking us. Perhaps the greatest foundational structural hope is the last one here. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Of all the pillars and buttresses, of all the things that, that help us get through it and make it and not quit, is this mystery of God. It's great. It's amazing. It's, it's substantial in size. It's even more impressive in content. This mystery of godliness. Okay, wow. What is it? And interestingly enough, he doesn't give us now a list of of, of both responsibilities or character uh, 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 features that enable you to, to, to do the job of bishop, elder, or deacon. No, no. He immediately starts talking about Jesus in verse 16. 
Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He. Not it. Not some title. Elder. Deacon. Really special Christian. The focus quickly shifts away from us to him in us. It immediately shifts away from job descriptions, elders, deacons. He's just spent the whole first part of the chapter talking about this. And he shifts to this. The ultimate strength is not having great elders and great deacons. You need great elders and you need great deacons. But so what if you don't have Christ? Here's what explains all the mysteries. How do you guys do that? How, how, do, you, how do you do what you do? You know how many people come to us, uh, uh, Carmen and I mostly, and, and others, and say, because word's getting around Gloucester Township that we've kind of partnered with, with Life has got a community, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not like the big buzz. It's not in the mayor's weekly you know, thing on, on the website. But I often, often, in a public setting, some say, Pastor Dave, First Baptist Black Church, yeah? What are you guys doing at La Cascada? How do you even know that? There is this inexplicable, this mysterious sense, and it's not, ooh, the smoke, and <laughs> not that kind of mystery. It's, What's, how, how do you do that? What made you want to do that? Why would you even do that? Great is the mystery of godliness. And here's what he says. Number one, he was manifested in the flesh. That God would become flesh. No wonder the shepherds were in awe. Of course, the angels singing that night. and That's pretty impressive. And the light that blinds them, they fall on their faces. That doesn't happen every night. And yet God is saying to us, see what I'm doing. I've spent more than half the whole Bible. Of course, the Bible was being written as it was being lived out. But God has spent more than half of the Bible time in, in, in constructing his word for us and remaining generations, preparing us for his coming. He didn't just jump to that right away. You've got the Old Testament, which by itself is incomplete. Inspired of God, but still incomplete. And he spent more than half building the story, laying the groundwork, giving you all these previews, all these previews, all these, all these previews. And it's filled with mystery. How does, how does that happen? Why did you do it that way? How, how come it works like that? What made you think of that? Oh my goodness, God, that's amazing. It's building, it's building. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. One will come, one will come. Okay, okay, yeah, let's get to it. He's coming, he's coming. It's going to be like this, it's going to be like this. It might happen this way, probably going to happen this way. He's coming, he's coming. And that's how God reveals himself to us. Kind of mysterious that he would do it that way. Haven't you thought to yourself, why, why did God even let Satan show up in, in the Garden of Eden? Oh, great is the mystery of godliness.
And, and why does the Bible say about Adam and Eve from the very beginning? Because Adam's got his hands in his pocket. He ain't doing nothing. He's not engaged. And Satan shows up, and he starts lying to Eve, and Eve says, yeah, wow, okay. And Adam, not saying a word. And so now the whole world wonders, how come God hates women? Well, what makes you think God? Well, because the, the Bible seems to say, especially you old, uh, you know, really uh, narrow-minded Neanderthal types, the women can't be pastors. I, I don't think God hates women at all. In fact, I think God's trying to protect women. He's trying to spank men forever because Adam didn't say a word. And God is saying to us, hey, men, step up. Hey, men, step up. I'm not kicking the women out. Not at all. I preach once a week. My wife is preaching nonstop, every day, all day long. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God has created these relationships in a way that we think is mysterious. But the more I understand God's word and God's ways, the more I realize, you know what? That's brilliant. It's brilliant that God is doing it this way. Now that I have this, this, all this background behind me, I can look back and say, yeah, it wouldn't have worked any other way. It wouldn't have worked any other way. God knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> How about this, God? After all these years, I'm finally, I think you're right, God. Glad you came around, Dave. These mysteries just keep layer after layer. Oh, now I can see that. Oh, my goodness. He was manifested in the flesh, not immediately right away. We don't read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then Jesus was born. All of this groundwork, all of this groundwork, because God is a patient and thorough God. Patient and persistent and thorough. The Bible says that in the right time, in the right time, Jesus was born. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Remember when Jesus was baptized? There's Jesus there in the flesh. And this voice came from heaven. What was it? This is my beloved Son. Or does God have a little squeaky voice? <laughs> I've never heard God's voice in my ear. Oh, how I've heard it in my soul. Screaming at me. What are you doing? He was seen in the flesh. He was vindicated, authenticated on a number of occasions. A number of occasions. Every miracle is a vindication. On an authentication. But the one we, I suppose, we, we, we go to the most is the, the scene at the baptism where the voice of the Father is heard. Jesus is seen in the flesh. But then this dove comes, comes flying in and, and just bites or lands on the shoulder of Jesus. And John the Baptist says, Oh, God told me that when I see that happen, I'll know that's the Son of God. 
and all of the manifestations of the Spirit in Christ, speaking through Christ, speaking to Christ, is the second of this solving the mystery, this mystery of godliness, manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, the night of the birth, all the angels are there. Singing. Proclaimed among the nations. This is an interesting one to me. Most religions are regional. In certain parts and most of Asia, these few religions dominate. In other parts of the world, it's, it's and not those religions that dominate in Asian countries. In, in these countries, it's Islam that dominates. But still very regional. This group here, and this group here, and this group here. And while there is now, in the 20th century, 21st century, because of technology and, and, and electronic transfer of information, that spread is occurring. But nowhere near, nowhere near as thoroughly or as frequently or as early as it was with Christianity. Nowhere near, long before, long before the technological revolutions, the things we know about smartphones and, and easy access. If you've got a, a phone in your purse or your pocket, I can get, if, depending on what kind of websites and stuff you've got, I can get in any library in the world. I can get in any library in the world if I knew how. Long before that happened, Christians in England who were being forced to baptize their infants said, I don't think the Bible teaches baptism of infants. They said, we're going to leave this country and go to another country where we can worship according to the dictates of our own conscience. And they left what we call Europe and they came to these shores so that they might worship God according to the scriptures. Long before all the other groups discovered technology and the transfer of information, Christians were sharing their faith all over the world because God sent them all over the world. And you know how he sent them? Persecution. It's as old as Acts. Chapter 2, all these languages. Chapter 6 and 7, persecution comes and they go everywhere. They go south to Africa. They, they go north up into what we know is, is broader Europe. They, they, they go north, uh, it would be east, into what we now know is, is, is that ice block, Russia, and all of that. Why do you see in Mexico the same kind of pyramids that we see in the Middle East? And the answer seems to be pretty logical and obvious that some of those same people, at least their descendants, made it all the way around the globe from a land bridge from Russia to what we now know to be Alaska, and they went south and found weather 
and temperature like they had left generations ago. And everywhere they went, they carried Christianity with them. Unlike the more contemporary religions of our era, which are very still regional. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among all of the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And people saw it. Look at Acts. Turn with me to the book of Acts. The one. The word they there is referring to the apostles and no doubt a few other disciples with them. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He has made himself approachable, apparent, visible for, well, from, from the time of, of, of crucifixion, which is the sacrifice, to the time of Pentecost is 50 days. So Jesus was alive on earth for what? 35 days? 40 days? 49 days? But sometime before Pentecost, very soon, right at the very brink of Pentecost, Jesus ascends back to the Father. So for 35, 40, 45 days, Jesus is walking around talking to people and convincing people, this is not a myth. I really am alive from the dead. Touch me, feel me. Here I am. Put your hand on my side, Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I'm here. I'm real. This ain't no joke. So when they, the apostles, at the very last, before Jesus goes back, had come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? This has always been the question. We're always thinking nationally. Jesus is thinking spiritually. Oh, this is, this is when Israel gets their, 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 their life back, their respect back. Then we get the Romans off our back and, 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 and we can be big dogs again. And Jesus will come in, in the flesh and he'll be our king. Is this now? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times of the seas that the Father has fixed for his own authority. Why do you worry about earthly things? Why are you worried about getting your respect back? Having your power back? Or whatever their motivation may have been. It's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know that. Here's what is for you to know. Verse 8. You receive power. You receive power. Don't forget where we were just a couple of verses back with this word mystery. You receive power. Now when Americans hear the word power, we think money. Money is power. Power is money. You got money? You got power. Or maybe we think, no, it's, it's, it's not so much money. It's not, it's not so much money. It's influence. Well, money buys influence. Money is influence. But, okay, if you want to make a distinction. You receive power, but the power is not, I know a guy. I'm connected. 
I have influence. I have money. I have education. I have training. I have connections. Our power is none of that. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Do you know why Christianity is so mysterious to people? Not because it's, it's got all the oohs and the ahs and we do this and we jump through these hoops and we pray this way and you know, we do it on Thursdays at 2.15 a.m. And not because we do goofy things that are unpredictable and ooh, those people are spiritual people. No, nah, those people are weird. There's a mysterious power to Christianity because God is living in us. His Spirit is in us. That's why the answer to the question verse: what, what is the mystery of godliness? He, He, it's Him in us. He's the, the, the answer. He's the, 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 big, the big point. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses around the globe in ever-widening circles, Judea, Samaria, well, Pastor, yeah, that's, that's great, but you don't know my life. Oh, just stop. Before you go any further and embarrass yourself, just stop. If that's your explanation. Have you forgotten what we're reading about these people in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament? They were despised. They were chased like dogs. They were persecuted beyond our comprehension. Many of them died. And it's still going on everywhere in the world except America. It's already begun here philosophically. Oh, you're one of those nut jobs. <laughs> yes, I am. Because people can't come to grips with the mystery of godliness. And because we're afraid of suffering for the mystery of godliness, my fear is, and let's go back to where we started this morning in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that we have a form of godliness but not the power thereof. And when you lose the power, you've lost the mystery. You're just doing weird things. And American religion is all about doing bizarre things. We do this, we do this. We, we do it this way, we do it this way. We say it this way, then we say it this way. And we do it this way because this is, this is, this is good. It's in the Bible. And you can find a precedent for these activities and in the energy of the flesh, we try to do those activities. We try to turn the other cheek, but I hate those people. <laughs> kind of turn the other cheek. It's kind of hard to turn the other cheek when you hate those people. And you go to second mile. I'll go to second mile and I'll blow up their house when I get there. The mystery of godliness is Christ in us, that our rage is gone. And it's not just going, I ain't mad no more. Can't you see him? No, the rage is gone and there's love and mercy and forgiveness and it never stops. It just keeps coming. You don't think that's mysterious? That's godliness. And it's mysterious because it's, well, it's not of the flesh. It's Christ in us and he's changed us. He's transformed us. We're new creatures in Christ. We don't just have religion. We have righteousness. You'll be my witnesses around the globe, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ever-widening circles. And then he was taken up out of their sight. 
And they lived in the power of that mysterious godliness. They lived in the power of that. And then, like all things, we say, yeah, yeah, God is with it, let's go. And then, well, they're still going. And this has happened to me, and this has happened to me. My kids think I'm crazy, and the Uncle Joe cursing me. And, and, and I'm, they said, if I don't come home, they're going to take my house, and this is going to happen, and this is going to, ah, ah. This ain't working, God, this ain't working. No, no, it, it is working. But, but we've grown accustomed to expect the comforts of our culture. Whether it's, I don't even care about the money, but I deserve a little respect. I'm not sure I do deserve respect. The culture says you deserve, we all deserve respect, but Jesus was a man despised. And he just kept on loving. You don't think that's mysterious? But it's the mystery of godliness. See, you can have a form of godliness and there's no mystery to it. We're religious and we do these things because somebody a long time ago said we should do it, so we do it. And we satisfy the expectations of our religion. Pick your religion. Christianity, and we've really doctored that thing up and added a whole bunch of traditions that Jesus never gave us any precedent for. But that's part of Christian tradition now. We do these things. If you're Muslim, you do these things. And if you're Hindu, you do these things. And everyone's got their traditions. There's no mystery to that. But when a church says, let's get back on track with pastors and deacons. When a church says, no, let's, let's get some people who were spiritual leaders and they lead us by serving the word because everybody serves they serve the word but we also need people that lead us in 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 a more what word do you hear in a more they're still spiritual people when you read the criteria for deacons very spiritual people but their responsibilities are make sure the widows are getting fed Make sure things over at Lacus Gata goes well. Make sure that the widows in the church are taken care of. Make, make sure that who's, who's, who's going to make sure the parking lot's plowed when it snows? Who's going to do that? Who's going to make sure that this happens? Who's going, who's going to order that material? Who's, who's going to take care of this? Who's, who makes sure that no one's, uh, you know, John Parsons, they seem the church is blind here. Stick, you know, he, always, he counts all the money. Who's watching John? Like John needs to be watched. God is. God is. So there's structures, not because we don't trust anybody, but because this is how we serve one another. This is how we serve our community. This is how we serve our God. Because he's given us these criteria. But notice in the midst of all of this spiritual work, making sure the parking lot gets plowed is a driven by a spiritual thing. We want people to be able to have access to public worship. So yeah, we're messing with, with getting a guy to come plow. And he came yesterday. John's friend. Did a great job. But the result of that is a spiritual thing. And you can come in here this morning and the heat's on and the lights work and we're warm. 
Nothing, nothing is purely cultural. In the church of Christ, everything has a spiritual element to it. That's why the deacons have to be just as spiritually qualified as the elders. The elders serve this way, and the deacons serve this way, and everybody serves some way. Because the Spirit of God is in us. And that's the only way we can explain why we do what we do. When people say, Pastor, why do you do that? You want the short answer, you want the real answer. I can tell you we love Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. They don't do that. Well, we only do that because the Spirit of Christ is in us. And if the Spirit of Christ is in us, there's something in me that wants to serve. And every so often my flesh really gets in the way and says, I'm sick of this! I'm sick of this! I ain't gonna do this no more! And the Holy Spirit in me says, you're what? You want to say that again, Dave? Why don't you say that in the pulpit, Dave? You're going to what? Yeah, you're right. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. That was stupid. That was selfish. I, I don't even believe that. That's my sinful flesh. No, the Spirit of Christ in me, which has changed my spirit, says, no, I want to serve Christ. And I find my greatest fulfillment in serving Christ. That's the mystery of godliness. That's the mystery that Christ is in us and I'm not the same cranky old guy I used to be. And ever so often that guy pokes his head up and I beat him back down by the grace of God and then I find my true joy in serving and loving and giving. That's why we need elders and deacons. That's why we need small groups to say to one another, are you letting the old flesh get in the way? Are you really giving your life in serving? That's the mystery of godliness. He was taken up in glory only to come again. That's where this passage in, in the books of, 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 of Luke conclude. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, Two stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him go. Muslims and Hindus, so far as I know, and I don't spend a whole lot of time researching other religions, but what little bit of time I have spent in, in pursuing other religions for information's sake, don't talk about their faith being focused exclusively, completely in one Redeemer and that one Redeemer coming to gather His people and sharing new creation with them. Only Christianity. Only Christianity. Because all of the religions, as much as they talk about a deity, it's almost always some prophet. Jesus says, no, I'm not just a prophet. I am God in the flesh. So that's mysterious to begin with. Second of all, I redeem people. I don't just forgive people. I transform people. 
I put my very essence in them. And that element of me in them is what makes them do amazing, bizarre, sacrificial things, illogical things that we look and say, why would they do that? That's crazy. No, that's not crazy. That's the mystery of godliness. And that's the kind of church we've been called to be. And we can shoot for that and strive for that and pray and work to that. Or, or, because they're too hard, too deep, too demanding. I just want to appear to be godly. And that puts us where we began this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that they had an appearance of godliness, but no power. No power. And I'm begging and pleading with my own self and all of us, let's not sell out for just the appearance of being good. Let's be good. But I can't make myself good. And you can't make yourself good. I don't care how hard you try. So we come to some kind of an altar. Right here. Front pew. Your bedside at home. Sitting in the car. Tears flowing down your face. You come to some place. Some where you say. God be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I can't make myself good. I can't make myself holy. I need your righteousness. Oh God, come and change me. I put my faith in you. And he will come. And he will touch your soul. And take away your wicked, sinful guilt. Replace it with his holy righteousness. And you'll begin to experience, and it'll be a lifelong process of experiencing the mystery of being like God. That's why it's called the mystery of godliness. I'm becoming more godly, godlike. I'm loving people that don't love me. I'm putting up with stuff that I never would have put up with before. I get cursed, I return a blessing. And we need pastors to help us do that. We need deacons to help us do that. We need the presence of God in our lives to help us do that. That we would live out this mystery to the world around us. Let's sing. Stand with me.